Would you join me in praying one more time as we come to the word this morning? Lord Jesus, we have invited you in just about every way I know how. Would you continue to grace us with your presence, God? May we meet with you. May you bring your word to life in our midst. Living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, as your word says. Judging the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. Lord, you know where each of us are this morning. You know what we're bringing in. You know what we're carrying into next week. Lord, during this time, may we meet with you and may your priorities become our priorities. May the things that break your heart break our heart. May we look more like you because we've been in the presence of you, I pray this morning. Move, Lord Jesus. Do what only you can do. It's in your name. Amen. So we're continuing to work through the book of Mark. Uh, We are in Mark chapter 10. uh, And two weeks ago, I'll recap a little bit. Um, Last week we had the Noels joining us and just sharing uh, what ministry is like for them overseas. And so let me recap a little bit. Uh, Two weeks ago we worked on one of the more well-known stories uh, of the Gospels, the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, The story of a young man with power and authority and wealth who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to enter the kingdom? And I was talking with some people after I preached last time, and there's a couple different ways you can take the rich young ruler, whether he was coming truly knowing I've done all of this stuff and something's lacking, whether he was coming arrogant because of everything he's done, We're we're really not sure. We kind of left to to read into it a little bit. But what we know is that when Jesus tells him what he must do, it says that Jesus lovingly looks at him and says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And it says that the man went away brokenhearted because he had a lot of wealth. So, So Jesus takes this guy that everyone would have looked at and went, obviously he's the example we should be following. They saw worldly riches as a sign of God's blessing, a sign that this person was doing the right thing. And so here was a rich man. He had authority, he had power. And Jesus tells him, give it all away and come follow me. And the man goes away broken. And his disciples have this reaction where they go, First of all, whoa, Jesus, if he doesn't make it in, they say, who can even be saved? And Jesus says, yeah, it's really hard. It's actually impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, but praise God, because nothing is impossible with God. God is the changer of men's hearts. And the disciples, as they're taking all this in, They put two and two together and they went, wait, Jesus told him, give up everything you have and follow me. And Peter speaks up and says, hey, wait, we gave up everything and followed you. We we did the thing that that guy wasn't willing to do. And they're kind of like astonished by this. And in Mark chapter 10, we'll read through this passage. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? But the disciples were astonished at his word. Again, he said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's an impossibility. So they were even more astonished. And Jesus said, with men it's impossible, but with God, or, uh, but not with God, excuse me, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, look, we've left everything and we followed you. We, we did it. What does that mean for us? I assure you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house, brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields because of me and the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So the disciples are trying to put it together. Wait, so who can even receive the kingdom? Because we thought for sure when this guy came, he had it together and he went away broken and sad. And now you're telling us that like we're in because we've done it and we're following you and they're trying to piece all of this together. And Jesus is telling them, look, it is costly to enter the kingdom. It is not a free ride. Grace is free. There's nothing we could do to earn it, yes? But in following Jesus, it is costly. We've already read uh, in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus says things like this, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. There's this weird paradox with the kingdom where it's at once free and at the same time the most costly decision we could ever make. And Jesus is telling them it is costly to enter the kingdom, but don't worry, your father sees you. Your father is waiting to reward those who earnestly seek him. We read two weeks ago from the book of Hebrews. It is a costly decision to enter the kingdom, but your father sees you and waits to pour out blessing on you for those that choose to follow. So let me ask this, because we have this story, rich young ruler, he comes and Jesus says, sell everything you have. He, he talks to his disciples and they're literally fishing on their father's boats and he says, follow me. And they literally walk away from the family business then and there. Not many of us have had that experience with Jesus where he literally walked through town, said, quit your job and follow me. So right now, in our day and age, 2,000 years after this story, what does it cost us to enter the kingdom? This is where I would love to hear from you. We always say, I'm not the only one that the, the Holy Spirit can speak to or through. He wants to use all of us. So let's talk as a church what does it cost us now, today, to enter the kingdom? Our pride? How so? Sure. Yeah, on the outside of the kingdom... My pride is alive and well, and pride by its very definition means this is all about me. My kingdom come, my will be done. But Jesus teaches when we enter the kingdom, it's about the king and his kingdom. The whole deny yourself, take up your cross, what he's talking about there is not physically pick up a cross and carry it around. Deny your pride. Every instinct you have that says this life is about you, kill it and follow me. That's a tough one. Maverick? 
Okay. Yeah. Give up whatever you might be thinking is your God that's not God. Giving up false idols, giving up the things that we rely on when he's calling us to rely on him, which is hard. Tim. I was thinking the same exact thing, yeah. We just speak a lot of Spanish, Tim and I. I think that means you're welcome to my house. Is that, Allie? It's good. My house is your house. That whole thing of going, look, everything I have, in a way, he may not say sell it, like physically sell it and give it to the poor. He may. But what he tells every one of us is live open-handed. Everything you have is no longer yours, it's mine. You're just a steward of it. And so when I call you to offer it to other people, offer it. Live open-handed, which is a costly decision. What else? What does it cost us to enter the kingdom? David? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, obedience. Again, the whole whole thing, the, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is about you. I'm a servant in the kingdom. You're the king. And it's about our obedience to him. There are some people who stand in relationships. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. For some, this is very real. For it says, you know, for those who leave mother, father, brothers, sisters, maybe not picking up and leaving, maybe. But for some, there's a fracture in relationship because... Oh, you're one of those people now. And there can be this, we're heading in two different directions now. I, let me tell you very quickly. I truly believe Jesus will never call you to be the one that breaks off relationship. But we have to be willing to endure the cost of other people breaking off relationship with us because we've decided to follow him. Jesus will always lead us to live at peace with others but others may not want to live at peace with us, and that is a costly thing. Okay, so I was reading in this like novel this week, and there's a scene where um, this boy who you, this main character, so you follow, who comes from a life of abuse and having to fight his own battles, and he has this experience where he can support and call the ancient. And um, his voice in the storm says, Bow. I mean, so he goes to Bow, but he has this huge. Other, to his abuser. It was, it, it, he wasn't guilty. He said in his own eyes he was 
who somebody who has absolutely done him wrong, and it's fictional, <laughs> but it was so close to my heart about that sometimes, like, my rights, like, my mm-hmm. right to be mad, my right. justification, I was that was to me for right. about, and, and he said, like, when he let go of it, it was just putrid, vileness, like, flowing out of this cauldron, and yet it was what he wanted to hold on to. Yeah. Kim will be reading excerpts later at the local Barnes and Noble if you want to stop by. And it is a good book. It is a good book. But yeah, we have to let go of our rights, our way of handling things. And let's be honest, all of our way of handling things is get even, is protect yourself. And when we enter the kingdom, Jesus says, you lay all that down. You now handle things my way. And my way is to forgive, not to hate. My way is to trust the Lord, not to seek vengeance. My way is to release bitterness and hatred and, in, and instead extend blessing, which is costly in the moment. If you've ever tried to do it, and I hope you have, it feels like death. So let me ask the other side. What do we gain by entering the kingdom? We, we know, I mean, we can see it, it is costly It is hard decisions. It is death to self. What do we gain as we enter the kingdom? Maverick, he's on the edge of that sea, man. The love of God. Absolutely. What do we gain as we enter the kingdom? We, we give up the, the fake things in this life, our illusion of control, security, whatever it may be, and what we gain is true security. What we gain is true safety because the one who is over us actually is in control. We give up the fakes and we gain the real things. Yeah, the things, that, the things that we gain, the perfect righteousness, the ability, we've talked a couple, over the past couple weeks, the ability to, as uh, the writer of Hebrews says, come boldly before the throne of grace, to enter into the king's throne room, we gain, and this is the beautiful part, what did it cost us? Nothing. That cost was, was paid for by another. Jesus paid that cost for us. And what we gain is righteousness being cleansed of our sin. What else do we gain? Okay. Yeah. 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 A true relationship, a life-giving, purpose-giving, identity-finding relationship with the king that we couldn't even imagine as we stand outside the walls of the kingdom. Right. Yeah. And think about this. What she just said, we, we gain perfect peace as we let go of our worry that feels so comfortable. 
Think about this. It costs us our worry. Think about how dumb that sounds for a second. We have to give up our worry. Why would that be hard? To gain peace. But it is so hard because it's the only way we've ever learned to handle our problems. And instead, he says, give up worrying. Find trust and peace. Is that another hand? JP? Eternal life. Kind of a big one. Uh, Don't want to miss that one. We gain the hope of an eternal future with the king in a way that the, the best things, everything we've described thus far, the best we can experience it is a shadow of what's to come. As much peace and security and righteousness and trust and faith as we can experience now pales in comparison to the day we literally stand in front of the most high king. And we have that hope before us if we will choose to lay down our way and follow the king. Maverick. Was that touching the grace of God? Getting with the grace of God, absolutely. Receiving, becoming a recipient of God's never-ending grace. I've done nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it, and he just keeps pouring out more of it. It is costly to enter the kingdom, but your father sees you, and he is waiting to pour out on us the benefits of the kingdom. And that doesn't mean riches in this life. He's not literally saying you will get a hundred houses and a hundred fields. What he's talking about is truly the desires of your heart, even in this life, not just a ticket to heaven one day, but even in this life, the desires of our heart will be given to us by our Father when we choose to follow him, when we walk in kingdom life just as Jesus did. But Jesus puts this tagline on the end of that teaching there, that he uses a couple different times, and it's so important. It it carries on through everything we're going to talk about today. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. It's not just, yeah, don't worry, God's going to pour out blessing on you, no problem. He, He uses this regularly with his disciples. But here's how it works in the kingdom. How, how do you get access to all of this? You make yourself last, because the last will be first, and the first will be last. And this wasn't just some theology for Jesus. It wasn't just some theoretical thing. This was real life for him. Look at what he goes on to say. The the very next verse, right after that line, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of him. They were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the 12 aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise again in three days. Sometimes, again, we can get into some trouble because our Bible's trying to be helpful. They put like story breaks in there and we go, okay, end of thought, on to the next thought. When Mark was writing this, when he was putting it in order, he put these two things smack dab next to each other on purpose. 
The last will be first and the first will be last. Let me show you what it looks like. I'm going to be beaten, mocked, spit on, and killed. That's what it looks like to be last. That's what it looks like to be first in the kingdom. I'm willing to give everything for the king. This wasn't, again, just a teaching from Jesus. Jesus was telling them, he's teaching them last first, first last. Let me show you what it looks like. You're about to see it in a couple weeks. But let me tell you what's going to happen. Mocked, beaten, spit on, flogged, killed. And then raised again in three days. There's always hope. But it's going to cost to live this kingdom life. They were astonished and afraid. They, they're hearing all of this and they're going, wait, we're following him. We're doing it right. And then they're like, what's he? He's talking about this whole dying in Jerusalem thing again. And, and they completely begin to miss it. But Jesus was telling them that he was willing to live up, or excuse me, to give up everything the world offers to gain everything the Father offers to put himself last in this life so that he would be first in the life to come. He's modeling this for them and he uses his death to model it. He's willing to sacrifice for the kingdom, but the disciples, as usual, don't get it. This is the third time that Jesus has told them about his coming death and resurrection and they miss it and hijinks ensues. The disciples, like as soon as he starts talking about it, it's like they check out and they have this default conversation they go to instead. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? We're able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it's for those who, are, who has been prepared for. When the other 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high position exercise power over them, but it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many." So again, Jesus comes and he tells them, you haven't got it yet, third time's a charm, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. And for the second time, they revert straight back to, but who do you think's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Yeah, 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 Jesus, Jerusalem, we get it, but I wonder if I'm going to be the greatest. In Mark chapter 9, a chapter ago, as Jesus is teaching on this, they actually started a betting pool on who would be the greatest when the kingdom came. And Jesus hears it and he goes, what are you doing? And he teaches them about power and authority in the kingdom. And they completely missed it. 
So now we have James and John. Uh, in other places, they're called the sons of thunder. And you start to see why. They're bold and they're brash. They ask Jesus to sit at his right and at his left in glory. These are seats of honor and power. To sit at the right hand or the left hand of the king is to be incredibly honored and powerful in that kingdom. And they come to Jesus and say, will you give it to us? We're the first ones to ask, can we sit in those seats? Make us, essentially what they're saying, the two most important people in the kingdom, the two most powerful people in the kingdom. Jesus, can we have that? They don't understand how power and greatness work in the kingdom. Once again, they have completely missed it. In verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? He's asking them, have you even been listening to what I'm saying? You want to be great in the kingdom. Are you willing to suffer for it like I am? To drink the cup. The, the cup, when they refer to that, oftentimes means the, is referring to the cup of the wrath of God. Are you willing to drink it? That's a cup of suffering. To be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with. Now, back then when they looked at baptism, it was just a going underwater, kind of a, almost like a bath, truly. Now I'm clean. Water washed away everything, I'm clean. Now the way we view baptism is the way Jesus viewed it. I'm partnering with him and I'm going into the grave. I'm dying so that I can raise a new creation alive to God. Are you willing to die to yourselves, to suffer for the kingdom like I am? And of course, James and John, we're able, they told him, no problem. I love to drink. Give me the cup. Baptism's no problem. Let's do it, Jesus. They've completely missed the boat. We're able, they told him. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink. And you will be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit in my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it's for those who have been prepared for. Jesus is telling them, actually, you will suffer for the kingdom. It won't be for the reasons you think it is now. It won't be for the glory and honor and power and authority that you're seeking now. It'll be for different reasons, but you will suffer for my kingdom. And we see this played out. James is actually the first apostle martyred for his faith. Herod, uh, the king in the book of Acts, gets a hold of James and puts him to death with the sword as a way to kind of please the crowd. And it gets him a whole bunch of attention and people love it, so he actually tries to get Peter then next. Like, but we see James drinking the cup that Jesus drank, dying for his faith, sacrificing everything in service to the kingdom, but not because of some power grab where he's trying to be great like we think of great, because he understands finally after Jesus' resurrection that to be first, I'm last. And if it costs me my life, gladly for the king. John becomes the final apostle persecuted. 
Church history tells us that uh, John was actually, they tried to boil him in oil, but it didn't take. Uh, they, they were so tired of John and his preaching the gospel that they grabbed him, threw him into a pot of boiling oil, and he climbed out the other side. And they thought, okay, that didn't work. Uh, usually does. So what do we do now? So they, they deserted him on an island, the island of Patmos, kind of a prison island, where he would spend the rest of his days as a captive for the kingdom. And he wrote the book of Revelation while he was over there, and he, we see him willingly, gladly suffering for the king, drinking the same cup, being baptized into Jesus' death, gladly, because he understands to serve my king, to put myself last, is the greatest honor I could have. That's how the story ends, but we find ourselves in the beginning with them missing it. Yeah, no problem, Jesus. Just let us sit at your right and your left. So the other disciples hear what happened, and it says that they began to be indignant with James and John. This whole brouhaha breaks out, and they're starting to fight and argue because how dare you beat us to the punch? You, you went behind our back, and you asked Jesus for the thing that we want. And so they start this whole fight, and Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And their men of high position exercise power over them. But it must not be like that with you. The things you're seeking right now, the very thing you're fighting over, it must not be like this with you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The world views power as something to be used to put yourself above others. That's the reason you climb the ladder. That's the reason you aim for that position is because it gives you power over others. This is what the world teaches us. Power and authority allow you to take from others. The words that Jesus used here, to dominate, to exercise power over, some other translations say to lord over others. This is, in and of ourselves, this is what drives us to seek power, authority, greatness, is it gives us power over other people. But Jesus tells them this must not be like this among you. On the contrary, greatness in the kingdom comes through service. Making yourselves, and this is a hard word, especially in our American culture right now, slaves to all. Putting yourself under other people as if they're the master and you're the slave. Shirley started this morning, we didn't talk about it, but she read from Philippians chapter 2. And that whole thing is saying, have the same mind as Christ, who made himself a servant to all, considering himself nothing. Jesus could have walked around going, the king's here, make me a sandwich, clean my sandals, go get my, my hot bath ready. I don't know what kings do. He could have done that, rightfully so. He is the king. He was the king. Yet look at the posture that he took. I have been given power and authority, and I'm to use it to serve. I will make myself a slave to all. 
power in the world is about making you big and others little. Power in the kingdom is about making yourself little to make others big. It is a complete reversal, and Jesus modeled this for us. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, even to give his life, just like he had been telling them about, as a ransom for many. The king came and said, my life will be the price to buy back those that should be serving me. Those who, I mean, and this is us. Here's our situation. As Jesus is walking the world before he goes to the cross, we were not only slaves to sin, we were willing enemies of his kingdom. Willingly participating in sin, giving ourselves over to it. And the king looks and says, I will serve them. I will give my life to buy them back from their sin. Paul says in the book of Romans that while we were still enemies of Christ, while we were actively coming against his kingdom, Christ died for us. Christ paid the ransom for us, not because we were so good and asked so nicely. We were actively fighting against his kingdom. And he chose to lay his life down on our behalf to serve us to become nothing so that we could become sons and daughters of the Most High King. Made himself little to make us big. Talk about that grace that we get to touch, that gets poured out on us. We did nothing to deserve it, but Christ understood how the kingdom works. He had been given power and authority, and it was to be used to serve, not to take from others. And he's calling his disciples to it, and they're missing it. So we go on into the very next story. And again, I want to to emphasize again, Mark put all of these stories together on purpose. It's not just random storytelling here and there. Sometimes that's how we approach the scriptures. Mark has a clear message that he's trying to get across. And this whole last will be first, first will be last thing, he's still illustrating that point. So he goes into this next story from Jesus teaching on how power and authority work in the kingdom to now watch how it works in real life. They came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Many people told him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, Have mercy on me, Son of David. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, he jumped up, and he came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind man told him, I want to see. Go your way, Jesus told him. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he could see and he began to follow him on the road. In this story, there are two different lessons at play. And I want to take a minute and and draw out each lesson. The first one, you can get very easily from how we normally read the Bible, which is one section at a time. Probably right above this story, if you looked in your Bible, it would say a blind man healed or Jesus and a blind beggar or something like that. And again, we tend to think, okay, these are all standalone stories sometimes. 
And if you read it like that, there's a powerful message that you can get. Faith is the conduit to the power of the kingdom. Faith moves the hand of God. Through faith, we see the power of the kingdom at work. Look at Bartimaeus' persistence. He has the same persistence that we have read about multiple times. Those who have in their mind, if I can just get to Jesus, everything will be different. We see it with a Roman centurion. We see it with a Jewish synagogue leader when his, when his daughter is dying. We see it with a woman who thinks, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I don't even have to talk to him. If I can just get in his presence, everything will be different. And we see that same spirit in Bartimaeus. His persistence, nothing could get in the way. He was unashamed of his need for Jesus. Crying out at the top of his lungs, bothering the king. Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowds are turning and going, shut up. Be quiet. You're annoying him. What? He can't even, you're sitting in the dirt. He can't even see you. Keep quiet, Bartimaeus. But it says that he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Nothing would come between him and Jesus. And Jesus was, or excuse me, in Mark 10, 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up. He's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Look at Bartimaeus' response. Think about this. Again, put yourself in the story. He is blind. He's been sitting on a street corner in the dirt, begging for money, unable to see the eye rolls of people when they walk by. He, he can't see a thing. He hears, hey, Jesus is over there. He, he probably doesn't even know exactly what direction. He's just crying out in any direction. Maybe Jesus will hear me. Jesus finally calls him. He gets up, throws off his coat, and runs to Jesus. If I'm blind, I'm probably not in a hurry to go anywhere. I'm going to trip and fall on my face. I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to get embarrassed. I'm probably taking my time, ask someone to walk me there. He heard Jesus call him, jumps up, throws off everything, and runs to Jesus. There, his persistence has paid off. And man, if I fall on my face, so be it. I have to get to Jesus. And you see this persistence at work within him. His faith, his trust, his belief in Jesus move him to radical action. And he runs up to his king. And in verse 52, go your way, Jesus told him, your faith has healed you. Immediately he could see it. He began to follow him on the road. His faith connected him to the power of the kingdom in his life. Your faith, Bartimaeus, the faith that said, I just have to get to Jesus, has connected you to the power of the kingdom. It has healed you. Jesus didn't go, look at me, I did it again. Another miracle, another notch in the belt. He said, Bartimaeus, it's actually your faith that has healed you. Your persistence to get to the king has connected you to the power of the kingdom and healing has flowed through. When you take a step back and you look at this story in context of everything we've talked about, as, as intentionally put right where it is, 
because it's continuing a thought. Last should be first, and the first will be last. Become a servant to all. Jesus has just finished teaching this to his disciples, and then he goes right in to this story of Bartimaeus. Skips everything else that happens in Jericho. It says there's a large crowd following him. He did some stuff to gather a crowd. Skips it. Goes straight to, and as we were leaving, Bartimaeus was there crying out. Because they're trying to teach this principle. No one could beat Jesus to the back of the line. Jesus modeled in the most perfect way how to put himself last. The king would put himself last. And now we call Jesus first, amen? No one was too low for him to serve. You could not get lower than Bartimaeus back then. You were blind, sitting in the dirt. They assumed that if someone was blind, it was because of sin. It was God, like, enacting punishment because of either something his parents did or something he did. Jesus has this, this kind of conversation uh, with the disciples at another uh, part in the book, you couldn't get lower. You couldn't get in their culture like more dirty, more unclean, God must hate this man kind of thing. He was the lowest of the low. Why do you think the crowds were shushing him? In, in other places, we see people being brought to Jesus. Hey, our friend's sick. Will you heal him? Like, There's a reason why the crowds kept shushing him. You're not worth it. You're bothering him. You're beneath him. He's important. You're you. Keep quiet, Bartimaeus. We're tired of hearing the yelling. Q&A time comes later, bud. <laughs> they were shushing him because in their culture, he was not worth Jesus' attention. But Jesus was and is a servant to all. Not because he was forced into servitude. It wasn't a begrudging thing. Fine, I'll deal with Bartimaeus. He understood and modeled the Father's kingdom economy. This is what greatness looks like. To become a servant. So Jesus publicly calls Bartimaeus to himself. And again, back then in their day and age, to call Bartimaeus to him in their culture was for Jesus to lower himself. The people you spent time with, you were on their level. It's why they had such a problem when Jesus would sit down and eat with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners because in doing so, he was basically saying, I'm like them. As valuable as they are to you, I'm putting myself on their level. As low as they are, that's where I'm stooping down to. And Jesus was constantly getting in trouble for this. To associate himself with Bartimaeus was to lower himself but through a kingdom lens, what we see is Jesus was raising Bartimaeus up to his own level. This man is worth my time because I'm about the father's business and there's no one too low to serve in the kingdom. No one is too unimportant in the kingdom. In fact, the more unimportant they seem, the more important they actually are in the kingdom. Think about, again, two weeks ago, we, we heard where Jesus was teaching about the little children and he starts using them as the example of, if you have faith like them, the kingdom is yours. All throughout scripture, the, the teachings on orphans and widows and foreigners, the least of these, the ones that were the least valuable to society, and God continually lifts them up and says, use your power and authority on their behalf. 
Love them, serve them, meet their needs, not your own, and watch what the king will do. And Jesus is living this out. Jesus was modeling kingdom life for his followers. A life of service, a life of putting yourself beneath others, a life of using your power and authority for the benefit of others instead of yourself. Look at the question that Jesus asks, and this is the most asked question by Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, speaking to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Have you ever caught this? That's a servant's question. How can I serve you? What is it you want me, the king, to do for you, blind beggar? There's a reason why the world went, this doesn't make sense. Why does he keep stopping for those people? But Jesus was asking a servant's question. What do you want me to do for you? He wasn't asking, what do I get out of this? He wasn't asking, what can this person offer me? Or how does this help me? Whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. Service is at the heart of kingdom life. If Jesus was willing to be the servant of all, how much more should we, the recipients of his sacrificial service, be willing to serve? So let me ask this question again. I'd love to hear from you. In light of the service we've received, in light of how Jesus has served us, has given everything for us so that we could be raised up when we didn't deserve it, we were actively enemies to the kingdom, in light of his service, why is a life of service so difficult for us? We see the disciples continually missing it. We know as we look at our own lives, this is the hardest thing. Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Consider yourself nothing, servants of all. This is the hardest teaching the scripture has to offer. Why is it so hard in light of what we've received from him? What do you think? <laughs> as simply put as possible, because you have to do everything. Yeah, because what we don't see is Jesus going, okay, you, not you, you, not you. He goes, I'm a servant to all, everyone, whether they deserve it or not, whether it's what I want to do or not. If I'm going to be part of the kingdom, then I'm called to be a servant to all. Why else? Why is it so difficult? The kingdom culture, in every way, in every facet, will always be countercultural to the world. Every single way, as opposite as you can get, that's the kingdom and our worldly culture. And every single day, we have been taught, whether through conversations with people, through books, through TV and radio, through social media, if you look like this, you're literally more valuable than everyone else. If you make this much money, if you have this level of job, if you, whatever it may be, the world is constantly telling us you're literally more valuable than them. Which then follows, why would you ever serve? We are indoctrinated. We are taught every single day. Every time we pick up our phone, every time we turn on the TV, every time we go out of our doors, 
we are, it is reinforced again and again. Your life is about you. Other people are here to make you happy because you're more valuable than them. And the kingdom call is 100% opposite. Yeah, the reward takes faith. When I'm selfish, I can see the quote-unquote rewards. I can see the fruits of that right now because I can look at my bank account. I can look at how many followers I have. I can whatever, however I measure it, I can see those right now. The kingdom rewards don't always show up that way. The kingdom rewards, I'm left to hope. I'm left to trust, to have faith that God is good and God is doing what he has promised. I can't always see it today. If we're smart, we look back over a year, we look back over 10 years, and we, we're, you're able to see, wow, look at all that he has poured out on me. But I'm selfish, and I want it right now today. And the kingdom rewards, the kingdom benefits, they don't show up in that same way. And that's hard. Why else? I was uh, sharing actually with Denise before the service. We were talking and I said, you know, if you love someone long enough, it always gets awkward. It's going to happen. Because all of a sudden it gets messy because you kind of get down below the surface and now it's that boy, like this, is it this way? Is it that way? Am I helping or enabling? And all, it gets messy. It gets awkward. And most of us at that point, we pull the ripcord, I'm out. We stop before we even get to there. But if you're truly loving, if you're truly serving, if this is your life, you're going to have awkward situations. You're going to have things where you don't always know the right way to go, where you yourself become dependent on the king to lead you because we don't know the answer, because it's messy, because it's awkward. But that's what we're called into. And that's, again, it's hard. What else? Serve and don't worry, it'll feel great. Yeah, we're not giving that promise. I, I shared a couple weeks ago talking about stuff, and I said, you want to find out how good of a servant you are? Wait till somebody actually treats you like a servant. See what comes out of you. It, if you're like me, it won't be pretty. You're not going to look and go, man, I'm killing it. You're going to look and go, this is killing me. Why, who do they think they are to talk to me like that? Don't they know what I'm already doing? Why would they even ask me? my selfishness will come out. And to look at that and to put it to death. I'm serving because the king called me to serve because this is how the kingdom works. Service is at the heart of the kingdom. 
we cannot walk with the king and not be a servant. It's incongruent. The two can't happen. To follow him is to live like him. And he was a servant to all, including me. The problem is, I get convinced that I deserved it. Do this long enough, and you'll get far enough removed from your BC days, your before Christ days, and eventually you'll, you'll start to convince yourself, well, well, yeah, but I deserve it. But I read my Bible regularly, but I go to church all the time, but I, but I, but I, I deserve it. Them, on the other hand, they're a mess. Why would God waste his time with them? And it's, it's ugliness that begins to come out. Everything I have, I have because he chose to serve me. And now he's called me to live likewise. So let me end with this question, and this is not one we're going to talk about. This is one for you. Is it worth it? We've talked about what it costs to enter the kingdom. We've talked about what you gain through entrance to the kingdom. We have been served by the Most High King, and we've been called to serve like the Most High King. The question we all must answer, is it worth it? <laughs> I'm scared to ask. Maverick. So very much. <laughs> so very much. I don't know how you argue with that. If you think it's not, talk to Maverick. That's what I'll say. But no, this is, like, truly, this is for all of us on a heart level. Is it worth it? It will feel like death. It will not feel great. I will feel used. I will feel like a slave to all. And in those moments, I'm going to have to come back to my answer to this question. But is it worth it? Is what he promises worth it? Is living a life of gratitude for how he has served me, is it worth it? If we don't have a clear answer to that question, you're just going to keep wallowing somewhere in the middle. We have to ask and answer this question for ourselves. Let me tell you, what the Sunday school answer is yes. We know it. Jesus would teach, yes, it's worth it. But you have to answer for yourself, do I believe him? Do I trust him? Is it worth it? Wrestle this one to the ground, because if we don't get this one right, nothing else matters. Is it worth it? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, in my head, I'm convinced it's worth it. I know, truly know, that the answer is yes. But God, in my heart, when I'm up against it, I question. In the moment when you actually call me to serve someone and I'm tired, or it's thankless, or it's hard, or it's not uh, something that I naturally do, I question. Lord, would you help each of us to wrestle this one to the ground? Once and for all, I pray, to drive a stake in. Either it is worth it to live a kingdom life of service because that's the way the king lived, or it's not, and I have to reframe everything. Lord, I would rather us be honest with ourselves about this if the answer is no, than continue to just put on a charade of, yeah, of course, when I don't have that answer. So, Lord, would you kind of haunt us with this one? As we go throughout our week, as we have interactions, as we are undoubtedly, as we will be called to serve this week, would you continue to bring this question back? Again, I know that the answer is yes. 
Lord, help me to live into that, I pray. To test, to taste and see that you are good, that you can be trusted, that you are faithful, that it is worth it, that the things that you offer are so much better than the things the world offers. May we take even baby steps this week, God, to living that out. Steps of faith. Because I believe that you will show yourself as good. So move as only you can, Lord. We trust you with all of this. In Jesus' name.